Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. You guys, I invite you to follow along a scripture reading today. Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. And it goes as follows. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore an oath by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, earth and that which is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be an interval of time, but in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he blew his trumpet, then God's hidden plan will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And I was told, You must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Happy Sabbath, church. Glad to be with you again. And I'm going to tell you, I've really been blessed by your service today. I came in here with low energy, sort of dragged myself in here. And um, the service has lifted me up. I've been lifted up today, and I want to thank you for that. You know, Mary's prayer was really inspiring. Then this young man prayed such a wonderful prayer. I mean, I'm, in, I'm just encouraged now. I feel, I feel stronger than I felt at first. My affect is lifting. And I want to thank you. It's all because of your goodness and God's goodness. This is part three of why am I still an Adventist. And I can't really give the highlights from the first two sermons, but they're in the archive, and so you should um, look at them. But today, I just want to uh, talk about what got us to this point that we are now. And the text that was read, it had a couple of significant things there. It talks about the mystery of God being revealed, and it talked about prophesy again. Uh, so let's just bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, now in these next few moments, Lord, we need you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Lord, we, res- we realize that you've always been faithful. And even in this month of of January, of new beginnings, where we look back at your faithfulness and we look forward into the unknown future. Lord, but for us it's not unknown because you're always faithful. And so we thank you. And so now, Lord, be faithful and speak and let your spirit speak to someone who needs you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 
Marcus Miller was the founder of the Millerite movement. And the angel told him to go tell it to the world, the message that he had received. I kind of have to reference one thing is that the reason he started serving God is because the military, the, the United States Army, beat the British against overwhelming odds. There were 4,000 American troops against 14,000 British troops, and the British troops had cannons and ships, and it seemed like it would be a foregone conclusion. But America won. They won that battle, and it, it baffled him. He, he didn't really have faith in God as a loving, caring, individual God. He was a deist who believed that, yes, there is a creator, but he doesn't care about us. He just gets things going, and then he goes off to some other part of the universe. But after this, he decided to start studying his Bible. And he spent two years, he was a teenager, we're talking 16, 17-year-old teenager, who decided to start studying his Bible. And so for two years, he read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, 21. Took him two years to get through it. And he was interested in time. And the thing that particularly uh, perked his interest was the fact that there seemed to be prophecy that pointed to Jesus coming again. So I'm talking about the roots of Seventh-day Adventists. There were no Seventh-day Adventists at this time. This was, there were no Adventists at this time. This was just a young man studying his Bible. So two years, I liken it to, you know, the two years you take to get your master's degree. He goes back and he studies four more years. And I'm saying this is where he got his PhD. He came to the conclusion that Jesus would be coming in 25 years, and he wanted to tell. And so an angel came to him and said, go tell it to the world. Miller remonstrated, and I want to just say, have you ever tried to argue with God? <laughs> oh, my, that's interesting. But at this point, he's almost, in six months, he'll be 50, month, 50 years old. And he says, Lord, talk about a midnight crisis. He says, Lord, I'm not ready to start a new career at 50. I'm a farmer. I'm a military officer. I'm a justice of the peace. But, 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 I'm not a preacher, Lord. And then the Lord spoke again, go tell it to the world. Lord, Lord, you can't be serious. He was so agitated that he went outside of his house into a little grove of trees behind the house and he prayed. And so he made a deal with God. He said, okay, I'll go if I'm invited to speak. I'm not going to go out looking for invitations. I'm not going to advertise. I'm not going to hire an agent or get a public relations manager. But if, if I'm invited, I'm, going, I'm not going to ask people to come hear me speak, but if I get invited, I'll tell what I found out, what I've studied. I'll go. 
Like Moses at the burning bush, he tries to negotiate with God. You remember Moses, don't you? Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses said to God, Behold, when I come unto the people, they will say, When I come unto the children of Israel, they shall say unto and say unto them, The God of our fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? Y'all remember this conversation. Lord, what shall I say unto them? And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me. They won't believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord have not spoken to you, and not appeared unto you. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech, and I... And I have a slow tongue. I can relate to Moses. And he said, Oh, my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And just like God answered all of Moses' objections, he convinced William Miller that it was in his best interest to obey the heavenly request. And so Miller made a deal. He said, It's hard to kick against the pricks with God. It becomes fire shut up in your bones. And so Miller acquiesced. I'm not going to solicit opportunities to tell what I have learned. I'm not going to aggressively look for a speaking engagement. But if, there's that huge little word, but if I am invited, I will gladly go. If, if, if. The burden rolled off his mind. He thought he came off with the better part of the bargain. After all, 50-year-old farmers are not in demand. No one's going to ask him to preach at this point in his life. Little did he know. He finished his negotiations, I mean his prayer, and he went back inside the house. And half an hour later, a 16-year-old nephew named Irvin he lived 16 miles down the road in Bresden, New York, a member of the Bresden Baptist Church. He welcomed, him, he welcomed him in and said, what brings you here today, Irving? He said, Uncle William. I have an Uncle William, too. Our pastor is not going to be able to preach tomorrow morning, Sunday morning. This means that this was the Sabbath. God is a poet. Neither one realized it that day. There were no Adventists or Seventh-day Adventists then. It's August 13, 1831. Irvin continued, We need a speaker, and someone said that your Uncle William has some interesting ideas about the Bible, about Bible prophecy. Go get him. Less than a half an hour after he had made his deal with the Lord, had never did any public speaking before, Never preached a half an hour after he make his deal with God. All of God's commands are enablings. Well, he was a man of honor, a man of probity. That just means of integrity, of uprightness. He was also very human. 
He went back out to that clump of trees, knelt again and prayed. He finally said, yes, Lord, I'll go. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Miller went into the grove of the farm, of, 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 into, into the grove of farmer, and he came out a preacher. Never called himself a preacher. I'm quoting from the Midnight Cry by Francis Nichol, a marvelous book published in 1944, a hundred years after 1844. The book talks about what happened in 1844. Nothing more than a lawyer's brief for the sanity of the William Miller movement, which led to the Adventist movement, which led to the Seventh-day Adventist movement, which led to me being a Seventh-day Adventist. Miller never called what he presented sermons. He called them lectures. He wouldn't dignify them by calling them sermons. Such was the humility of the man. He wasn't a preacher. Well, his first sermon or lecture was delivered on Sunday, August 14, 1831. And from August 15, 1831 to October 21, 1844, that's 13 years, you have a period of 4,817 days. If you don't believe me, figure it out. I did the math. And in those 4,817 days, William Miller preached approximately 400 lectures, which averaged one lecture every 12 days or five lectures every two months. For 13 years and two months, he spoke, to over, he spoke in over 500 towns from Maine to Mississippi, and even in Canada. Some 200 clergy accepted his views, and some 500 lecturers proclaimed his views. This is what happens when you believe that Jesus is coming soon. Have you told somebody? Have you warned somebody of the calamity to come? Anyway, as a result of Miller's faithfulness, Nearly 50,000, some historians will go higher than that. Nearly 50,000 obeyed the heavenly vision. One man who believed God. Some thought he was crazy. He believed he heard the voice of God like John the Baptist in the wilderness, which had strange wheels turning in his head. Prepare the way for the Lord. We prefer the more conservative figure of 50,000, but he preached from Maine to Mississippi and some in Canada. William Miller rocked America. He rocked America, and the tremors of that earthquake uh, was felt even in some places overseas due to the publication of literature. By Miller's own reckoning, he accounted for 6,000 converts of whom uh, 700 were previously infidels. And so it was, he came home. His message, time will be no longer. That's, that's in that passage we read today. There should be no more delay. And he was sitting there on the porch with Joshua Himes on the porch on October 22nd, 1844. Some Adventists, forgive me, all teachers are nitpickers, and I'm a teacher, more than I am a preacher, and so I'm a nitpicker. Teachers are obsessive and obsessive compulsive about details. Will you indulge me? 
We sometimes say October 22nd, 1844 was the day of the great disappointment where, it was, where the message was bitter in the belly. But I'm going to say nonsense. Nobody was disappointed on October 22nd, 1844. It was not a day of great disappointment. It was a day of great expectation. The disappointment will begin the next day, October 23rd, 12.01 a.m., when Jesus didn't come. What was it that the angel said to John, the beloved disciple, John, the revelator? He said, take the little book, eat it. In your mouth it shall be sweet as honey. But when it gets down in your stomach, it's going to be bitter as gall. Mentions that twice in that 11th verse of in that 11 verse, chapter 10 of Revelation, it's going to be bitter as gall. Where we as Seventh-day Adventists find our prophetic roots is Revelation chapter 10. In not one, but three different places, time shall be no longer, no more delay. Secondly, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. As the Millerites preach that message that time should be no longer, that there should be no more delay, it was sweet in the mouth. Oh, yes, it's sweet to anticipate Jesus' return. They said, we got the right day, but the wrong event. Well, they were right, but they were also very wrong. Samuel Snow came up with the date of October 22nd, which was the Day of Atonement in 1844, based on the Karaite Jewish calendar. And of course, all kinds of untrue myths and legends have sprung up in popular American culture concerning what's supposed to have happened. Ascension robes. They didn't have any ascension robes. No. Insanity. Francis Nichol went from one insane asylum to another, checking the records. And he got the evidence in his book, The Midnight Cry, that insanity alleged to be rampant among the Millerites was a non-event, non-factual. 16-year-old girl wrote in her diary these interesting words, eyewitness account. With unspeakable desire, those who have received the message watch for the coming of their Savior. The time when they expected to meet him was at hand. They approached this hour with a calm solemnity, they rested in sweet communion with God and earnest of the peace that was soon to be theirs and the bright hereafter. <clears throat> Excuse me. None who experienced this hope and trust can forget those precious hours of waiting. Worldly business for the most part was laid aside for a few weeks. Believers carefully examined every thought and emotion of their hearts as if on their deathbeds, as if in a few hours they would close their eyes on earthly dreams. There was no mention of ascension rose from an eyewitness. All felt the need of internal evidence that, that they were ready to meet the Savior. Their white rose were the purity of, of soul, characters cleansed by the, blood, by the blood of Jesus, by the atoning blood of Jesus. Paul said unto them that look for him the second time shall he appear. 
For he shall come without sin until salvation. And the Millerites really look for him. The question for us today, are we really looking for him? This is the pre-advent period. No seven-day Adventists existed. And Paul added, not to me only, but to all them also who love his appearing. And the Millerites really loved his appearing. Do you? Do you? But Jesus did not come. And the disappointment of his not coming has only been equal in the whole history of Christianity. I should say in all of human history. On a day we call Good Friday, by the experience of 12 men, not one of them would have agreed with you on that day that it was a Good Friday. Never a disappointment quite like that to those, well, 11 men and a mother standing at the foot of the cross. Hiram Edson, a farmer who later became an Adventist minister, wrote in his diary that our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a period of weeping came over us that I had never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We weeped and weeped until the day dawned. I knew in my own heart that my Advent experience had been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experience. If this had proved a failure, what is the rest of my Christian experience worth? Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God? No heaven, no golden holy city, no paradise. Is this all but a cunningly devised fable? Is there no reality to our fondest hopes and expectations of these things? And thus we had something to grieve and to weep over. If all of our fond hopes were lost, and I say we wept until the day dawned. And he was living in Port Gibson, New York, right there along the Erie Canal. That night of October 22nd, and at midnight, when Jesus had not come, he took another young man with him, believed to be Owen R.L. Kosher, a local school teacher. And Hiram Edson and Kosher went out to his near empty barn. The barns of New England and New York are not empty in autumn in the end of October. They are filled, hopefully, to overflowing with the produce of the rich harvest. But the Millerites didn't harvest their crops because, you see, uh, they really believed that Jesus was coming. And they were being, they, and so the other people in the community were laughing at them, saying, you don't really believe that Jesus is coming. And so that's why they didn't harvest their crops. You're kind of hedging your best by filling your barns. And so they said, we won't harvest our crops. The corn was left in the shucks. The potatoes were left undug in the ground. That barn was nearly empty on the morning of October 23rd, 1844. A great Wednesday morning. They prayed all night. And then Edson said to young Crozier, Let's go and encourage the hearts of the believers like y'all encouraged me this morning. They avoided the road past the barn. They didn't want to run into the neighbors. 
They have been mocking plenty of it before October 22nd and 23rd. But there were some people who said in the back of their mind, you know, I think it's crazy that these Millerites, you know, are looking for Jesus to come. But if they're right and he does come on October 22nd, I don't want to be found laughing at them. And so at least the ridicule was a bit muted until October 23rd. But on October 23rd, they came out of the woodwork. Can you imagine the whole community making a mockery of your religion, of your beliefs, while they were made a laughingstock? And as Epson and Crozier were walking across a cornfield, they heard <laughs> Walter Martin, a Lutheran minister who wrote the book, The Truth About Seventh-day Adventists, and he let them have some of it because he thought that it was a, appropriate because they were walking through a cornfield and he thought the fact that they believed Jesus was coming soon was a corny idea and here they are walking across a cornfield. And so he just laughed and laughed. So funny I forgot to laugh. A neighbor spied them, spotted them, saw them and he couldn't resist. And so he cupped his hands across and, and he called across the cornfield, Hiram, you didn't go up yesterday, did you? Let me tell you, friends, those Millerites were made of sturdy stuff. He didn't break his stride. He simply called back over his shoulder, no neighbor, no neighbor. I didn't go up yesterday. But if I had gone up yesterday, where would you have gone? Where would you have gone? And I add, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where will the sinner appear or the ungodly? Another critic was silenced, if only for the moment. As they walked along, they didn't feel like talking. And so Crozier said something to Edson, no reply. Kept going, he said something else, no reply. And he looked over his shoulder over there in the field and Edson wasn't there. Crozier turned around, looked behind, and there was a half a dozen paces behind him. There stood Hiram Edson, transfixed, transfixed, looking up into heaven. Now, I don't know whether what Edson had was a vision like prophets have or an illumination of the Holy Spirit like others have. I don't know, and it doesn't matter whether it was inspiration, illumination, revelation, special revelation. It doesn't matter. But at that moment, he looked up into heaven like Stephen 20 years before. He looked up into heaven and he said, Lo, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Crozier ran back to Edson and said, Hiram, Hiram, what is it, man? And in a voice filled with awe, Hiram Edson said, Crozier, I don't know what it is, but maybe, just maybe, God is beginning to answer our prayers. For what were they praying about? An explanation of what went wrong. Because you see, Edson began to realize that almost instantly that time, the time element of the prophecy, the time ele element of the prophecy was right. He was convinced that it was the event that was wrong. What really happened was that our heavenly high priest Jesus Christ had moved from the holy place into the most holy, holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. 
Christ still had a work to perform for his people on earth before he could return. Yes, the sacrifice was complete on Calvary. Their atonement was not sufficient. And at that point, and that point is crucial, my friends, because we hear a lot of noise in certain circles in Adventism. It was all finished at the cross. The sacrifice was complete, sure. Paul nailed that down in the book of Hebrews. The sacrifice was offered once and for all. But friends, the atonement is not yet totally finished. But it will be a sobering thought for us Sabbath keepers, is it not? Only the blood applied to blot out my transgressions affects atonement. It's personal. The cross is universal. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. But atonement is grace applied to my situation and to your situation. Everybody has to appear before the judgment bar of God. The sacrifice for man, for mankind is complete, but the atonement was not yet finished. Because he was looking through the ages, looking at me and looking at you. He's making room for us. He's preparing a place for us. And so there's a work of cleansing in our lives. That has to be done. A work of investigation. We work out our salvation, the Bible says, with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. There's a work to be done. There's a victory to be won. Every hour by thy power, O Lord, I'll be true. I'll be true. Why? Because Jesus is fighting for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. A work of judgment is to be undertaken. And thus could Francis Nichol declare that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born on October 23rd, 1844. It wasn't incorporated until 25 years later, 1869. But the seeds germinated October 23rd, 1844. Thus this train of thought, atonement, investigative judgment, Jesus entered a new phase of his heavenly ministry as our high priest. And he said unto me, unto 2300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel 8, 14. The book was closed. Daniel was told to close up the book. And for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no grail, he he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. Hebrews 6.13 connects to Revelation 10. He swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, the earth and the things that therein are, the sea and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. Revelation 10.6. The book is not open. This connection between Daniel closing the book and Revelation opening the book was developed by the study of others. But what was it that the angel said? The angel said three things. We find our roots in three places in Revelation chapter 10. Thou must prophesy again. And, the, and church, there have been different schools of thought within Adventism, then and perhaps even now, as to what exactly that means. 
Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. There were some who said, yes, the sanctuary truth should be added to the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Well, I don't know if that is what Jesus meant or not. The angel is Jesus. We, we established that in those first two sermons. Thou must prophesy again. I don't know if that's what he meant, but I do know this. That is what happened. That is what happened. Then others said that a third angel's message had to be added to the first two. Listen, they barely preached the second angel's message. The earliest I could find the second angel's message being preached is 15 months before October 22nd, 1844. Charles Spitz, Cleveland, Ohio, died just a few days before October 22nd, 1844. After preaching the second angel's message, he was 34. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine and the wrath of her fornication. There was a third group that said, you are both wrong. That's not prophetic symbolic language. That's literal. Thou must prophesy again. That means that the gift of prophecy is to be restored to God's people. And again, I don't know if that's what the angel meant or not by what he said, but I do know that's what happened. All three groups are right. And so it was that on, on an unknown day in December 1844, five women were praying in the upstairs apartment with Mrs. Haynes, a woman in South Portland, Maine. They were praying about that disappointment that had happened just six weeks earlier, praying that God could give them an understanding. Among those five women praying in Mrs. Haynes' apartment, was a girl who was just barely 17. We don't know what the, what, day, what the day in December really was. That has been lost to history. We just have to wait until we can ask Ellen. I bet she can remember. But we do know how old she was because her birthday was November 26, 1827. Her 17th birthday had been had been just 24 days after uh, the great disappointment, 11, 26, 14, uh, 44. She had been an invalid for eight or nine years, injured at the age of nine. You know the story of the rock, a playmate uh, hurled it, angered by some childish trifle. It looks like God really wanted to confound some people. You know, God uses the weak and uneducated to confound the wise. The foolishness of God is wiser than the foolishness, than the wisdom of men. Lothbrook was right when he said God chose for the third time. The third time God chose. Ellen Gould, Harmon White was not God's first choice. God chose the weakest of the weak. She weighed about 80 pounds, of course, she was only 5'3", but even at that height, 80 pounds is not very much. Some of our thighs are 80 pounds. Couldn't sleep in bed, had to sleep sitting up, coughing blood, couldn't speak above a hoarse whisper. 
There was no more unlikely candidate for the office of prophet in the entire history of prophethood that Ellen Harmon, who would later become Mrs. Ellen White, but she wasn't God's first choice. His first choice was an African-American, William Ellis Foy. Foy. God is no respecter of persons. Delbert Baker wrote a book published in 1988, wonderful book, first definitive account, splendid biography. But Foy, but Foy was intimidated. Racism was the law. They were lynching blacks. He was afraid, although after meeting Ellen White, he did begin his ministry, and he preached for over 40 years. But he was reluctant to tell what he saw. He did not share his visions until after he met Ellen, and this is the first time we know of where two modern-day prophets met and confirmed each other's gift. He was present on one occasion when Sister White was relaying one of her visions, and he could not contain himself. He jumped up and down in a meeting and shouted, that's just what I saw. Burning his visions, his angel or guide never told him to tell others. He was afraid to share his visions without a direct command to do so. Also, Ellen Weiss, besides being told specifically to tell what she was shown, she was also given, addition, given additional information. She was given explanation or the interpretation of her visions. William Foy was only given visions without the interpretation. Devin Baker's book, The Unknown Prophet, details all of William Ellis Foy's visions. He lived in Boston and even in New England when there were many abolitionists, there was severe racism and bigotry in those days. It's very dangerous for an African-American to draw attention to himself, to speak out. Richard Wright wrote The Invisible Man. There was also prejudice against prophets because out there in the West, Illinois isn't West to us, but Illinois was West in 1844. In Illinois, there was a man out there in a Mormon colony called Naboo who styled himself as a prophet, revelator, or seer. And he was teaching and practicing polygamy. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for all of us. Naboo, a Mormon prophet, polygamist, was giving prophets everywhere a bad name. Do you know that 1844 was a presidential election year. Twelve days after the great disappointment of October 23rd, there was disappointment by some people who did not get reelected or elected to office on the first Tuesday in November. And Nauvoo decided, I'm going to run for president of the United States. And they said, which one of your wives is going to be the official hostess, the first lady? Only one could be first lady a polygamist in the White House. Even in the West, on the frontier, people were shocked and staggered. This is one of those reasons, this is one of the reasons why Ellen White never took the title of prophet, never once called herself a prophet. Others called her a prophet. She always referred to herself as your humble servant. 
never disowned the role, never corrected anybody who called her a prophet, but she never called herself a prophet. Two reasons she gave. One is my work involves much more than most people think when they think of the work of a prophet. Most people, even among Adventists today, think prophet means fortune, fortune teller, predictor of the future. Robert Olson did research and he said of the 25 million words Ellen G. White wrote, and nobody wrote more than she did in American history other than Benjamin Franklin. Not more than two to three percent at most had to deal with the predictive element. Of course, there are some amazing prophecies in that two to three percent of her written ministry. And so Ford was intimidated and stymied, and his role was more like John the Baptist. After Ellen G. White came on the scene with similar visions and the interpretations, he said she must increase and I must decrease. Let's be clear. William Ellis Foy did tell what he saw. He fulfilled his purpose. Hazen Foss is the one who refused to tell what he saw. And his epitaph by his own lips is that he is a lost man. Hazen Foss, who was the brother of Samuel Foss, Samuel Foss was the husband to Mary Harmon Foss, an older sister. Some, some commentators say she was a twin sister of Ellen Gould Harmon White. That makes Hazen Foss and Ellen White brother and sister-in-law. God gave him visions. God gave him the message, and he was angry with God. He felt God had tricked him when he didn't show up on the day he was supposed to. And so the angel came to him several times and told him to tell what he had been shown. Get on with it, man. Get on with it, man. You got to get these messages out. He dithered about. Finally, the angel said, you got one more chance. Hazel, he continued to procrastinate. He dithered around. Dither means to be indecisive, vacillate, waver. And so the angel finally came to him and said, forget it. It's been taken from you and given to the weakest of the weak. Then Hazen Foss got scared and booked a little schoolhouse, put up posters. Come here with the angel of the Lord said to me. The place was jam packed, standing room only. The windows were open. People crowded around the windows outside. You can almost see four friends tearing up Peter's mother-in-law's roof. To get to the to get the paralytic to Jesus, as Hazen Foss stood at the podium, you could have heard a pin drop. I was in a certain place on a certain day when the Spirit of God came upon me. An angel came and said, "Hazen, I have a message for God's people." And the angel said, "And the angel said, and the angel said, and he could not go on." He could not continue. Like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was taken from him. Like Zachariah, Elizabeth's husband, and John the Baptist's father, he could not finish his sentence. He backed up. I was in a certain place on a certain day, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon me. And the angel came and said, I have a message for the people. And the angel said, 
And the angel said, and he could not go on. He stayed in sin one day too long. He procrastinated one day too long. Like Balaam who tried to curse God's people. When he opened his mouth, blessings came out. He could not say what he wanted. The visions, the messages were gone from him. It, was, it wasn't until much later when he heard Ellen White, his sister-in-law, that he told her that what she saw was the same thing that he had been shown. But now he could no longer speak the vision. It was because he didn't say it when God told him to. Now he couldn't say it even though he now wanted to. It was too late for him. We find our prophetic roots in Revelation 10, our prophetic messenger in Revelation 12, our prophetic message in Revelation 14. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Only place in scripture, I remind you, where these two concepts, these two principles are joined together. together. Everlasting gospel. Have you seen the new Roman Catholic translation by Monsignor Roy, Ronald A. Knob, New Testament alone. Have you seen how he handles Revelation 14, 6 through 12? Monsignor Knob has the official translation of the text for the Church of Rome. It is official. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having a final gospel footnote. Now, I'm always leery. I'm always nervous about footnotes in Bibles, living Bibles. The living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. Footnote. Solomon didn't mean what he wrote. He was just in a blue funk that day. Footnotes try to explain away the truth of the gospel. Sol Solomon really didn't mean it in the Roman Catholic Bible. Matthew 16, 18, thou art Peter, and I'm going to build my church upon this rock. There's more footnote than there is Bible text because they developed this doctrine of apostolic secession. Peter supposedly was the first pope on down to the present one. And so I'm always living reading footnotes because they often have an agenda that has more to do with tradition than truth. But I was interested in this one. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having a final gospel. Footnote, while the gospel carried by this angel is said to be final, we're not told in the text. But we note from the context that this is the last message given by God to this world, this side of eternity. And so I can say amen to that. Glory, hallelujah. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to him. The footnote on this text in the New Roman Catholic Bible is correct. I say again, amen. I can preach that. In the 1920s, a meeting was held among only Protestant clergy. We're coming down to the end here in the United States. I think it was held in New York. Adventists were invited to, the meeting, to that meeting, which is surprising because we didn't have very good track record of cooperating with other denominations on anything. I said anything. The fact that they would invite us was amazing. And the fact that one of our men went, Elder W.H. Pfizer, the then president of the General Conference, was even more surprising 
And the whole purpose of this meeting was to describe a plan to correct a problem which still exists in many parts of the world. In one village, you might have five missionaries of different denominations all working to try to win that same African soul to Christ. You go 20 miles and find a bigger village with no missionaries at all. And so this meeting was a cost accountant's dream. Let's take all of the Christian missionaries and spread them evenly around throughout the whole world. Each denomination agreed and committed to take an area. Then they addressed Elder Pfizer. Elder Pfizer, do you agree to go along with our plans? You will be assigned an area with no competition. Could your Adventists go along with this plan? I'm told that when Elder Pfizer rose to respond, that he had a twinkle in his eyes. He said, yes, I think the Adventists will go along with it. Everybody just about dropped their teeth. I can only think of one condition that would have to be met, they said. What's that, he said, that the only reason that we are going to the whole world is out of default. And then he pointed to the man, he said, it's your fault. You're not preaching the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 14. And that's why we're going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. If you were doing that, we would not have to. If all of your missionaries would agree to preach Revelation 14, 6 through 14, the three angels' messages, the everlasting gospel, the final gospel, the final message to this world from Yahweh, this side of eternity. If you would give me your word, if all the missionaries would agree to preach that, we, would, we wouldn't need to go to all the world. Accept those conditions, and you got a deal. I'll sit down. The chairman said, well, Revelation 14 is in the Bible, and we believe the Bible, and we all preach the Bible. I don't see any reason why we cannot agree today to preach Revelation 14. Our missionaries accept this mission to preach the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. The main official pulled the chairman's coat and told him to sit down. He explained that none of the other churches could preach Revelation 14, 6 through 12. And there were at least two reasons that only the Seventh-day Adventists could preach the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Number one, they don't know what they mean, and they admit it frankly in their literature. They don't know what the three angels' messages mean. You cannot preach a text you don't know what it means. You don't know what it means. But there is another more important reason that nobody else can preach Revelation 14, and that is God didn't give it to them. He gave it to us for such a time as this. To those upon whom the end of the world has come, this is God's final message. There should be time no longer. You must prophesy again. You must, you must, you must. My friends, the only reason for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to preach these three angels' messages to the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. What was it the little lady said in a special sense, the light bearers, watchmen, God has placed in the world. In the last days, she says, to them that have been entrusted, the last warning for a perishing world, on them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work to do of the most solemn import, 
the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. God gave it to us. I have many other quotes, but I want to be, belabor you with them. The three angels' messages is the Seventh-day Adventist Church's sacred trust and commission. Our raison d'etre, our reason for existing, our reason for, for living, our manifest destiny. I remind you destiny is a choice you choose. We must fulfill our purpose. What does it mean? What does it really mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Why am I still a Seventh-day Adventist? We are the only people on the face of the earth who find their prophetic roots in Revelation 10. And we find them in three different, three different places in Revelation 10. Verses 6, verse 7 through 9, and verse 11. We're the only people in the entire world who find their prophetic messenger in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, 17, and Revelation 19, 10 explain, explains that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we're the only people on the face of the earth to find our prophetic message in Revelation 14. And for me, that's what it really means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. It distinguishes us from other Protestant groups. This is what Peter was talking about when he said, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Though you know them, and be established in the present truth. 2 Peter 1.12, present truth, present truth. The sanctuary doctrine which explains how Yahweh adjudicates the sin problem. It incorporates a 2300-year prophecy which points to and illuminates Jesus' role as both our sacrifice and intercessor. The 2300-year prophecy states emphatically that then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, which coincides with the birth of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Present truth, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. up until 1844 A.D. is 2,300 years. If this text wasn't in the Bible, I couldn't preach it. Only one church came on the scene in Protestantism, and that is the beginning of the Adventist movement. Present truth. My Lord had a rich blessing to his word. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.